Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We are a small secondary college in a country town in northern Victoria, Australia. We believe that we are unique. My name's Matt Carver, current principal at St Mary of the when Angels. When we arrived, there were, was an old... So I've got a podcast, um, which I run through my little school. Hi, my name is Michaela Brooks. I'm the senior school team leader. My favourite thing about St Mary's is the students. So if you are interested in education or just what it's like to be someone who's in a small country town in Victoria in Australia, I'd love you to listen. It's Angles and Angels... All the second stage tanks now pressurised. The podcast that I'm working on at the moment and is going to be released sometime in the new year, it's the story of how a small little Wiltshire town became one of the most weirdest places on the planet. A focus for UFO sightings and all kinds of things. To the point that a local paper actually put out a headline of prepare for alien invasion there's this really brilliant story about people who belong to ufo groups and the rivalry between them that's the story that i've been fascinated with since i was a kid because i lived just down the road so look out for it it's just simply called warminster This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, Anna. This is Dumpty Dum, sponsored by managers. This is Dumpty Dum. It's Dumpty Dum, and it's Christmas, and you're probably full of turkey, and you've decided to nip off from the warm embrace of your family, because you know what? You can have a bit much of them on Christmas Day, can't you? You're probably in your bedroom, headphones on. I'm just going to have an hour with Dumpty Dum, just like chillax. 
So that's what we're here for, to make you relax on this most festive of days. And with me, I have Dr. Nicola Hetler, Dr. <laughs> Nicola Hetler, who's one half, stop it, of the Academic Archers. Now, Doc, why don't we have your sidekick with us today? Something went weird with the tech. I'm sad because it's always more fun to bounce off Cara. So love you, Cara, and I'm sure we will um, we'll catch up over Crimbo. Folks, if you knew all the different podcasting platforms that we went through to try and make this happen, right? <laughs> it has been a total force of a technical gremlin and podcasting platforms. Uh, you can hear somebody laugh in the background. Uh, I believe they're from the upper lower east west side. Um, how is it uh, on the upper lower east west side today, Mr. Spoon? Uh, well, it's a bit snowy, but actually, I'm here. From Summit, New Jersey, my office. Ooh. So I'm not in the upper lower east west side, which is actually perfect. It's a perfect description of where I live uh, in the heart of Greenwich Village, but I'm at my office. Joyzy. Yes, Joyzy, New Jersey. No, Joy-Z. Summit, is, Summit is, is sophisticated New Jersey. It's Ooh. wealthy New Jersey. It, it, isn't that an oxymoron, sophisticated New Jersey? Oh. oh. There is much more to New Jersey than you realize, and people realize. It's not all the Sopranos. Oh, I love Uh, Sopranos. Or the Jersey Shore. (laughs) Now, you know what? We don't want to send our listeners down a cul-de-sac talking about Sopranos or even Jersey Shore when we're here to talk about the Archers. Now, so what I've done, folks, um, I've decided to put together a brains trust, probably two of the most intelligent people that I know who also happen to be Archers fans. I decided to get them together uh, to talk about uh, the Archers and the Ambridge uh, in depth. And basically, you're probably wondering, so why are you part of this, Royfield? Exactly. Um, I just, I'm just i going to be the button presser today. Uh, intellectually, I don't hold a candle to these pair. Uh, however, I'm just <laughs> along for the ride. Um, here is our first little clip to whet our appetites and to start our discussion. I'm not proud of everything I've done in my life, but I'm not one to live in a state of regret. One has to keep moving forwards. It's imperative that we all act. We all need to be on the right side of history right now. I agree with young Henry. I want to save the planet. We're with you. Thank you which is why I've called you all together, the heads of our family farms, Home Farm, Bridge Farm and Brookfield. I will be offering some money to whoever comes up with the best sustainable farming idea. I met with my financial advisor again this week. We're in the process of setting up a charitable trust. I'd like you to pass the information on to the younger generations of your respective farms. How will you decide which idea is best? I'll be sourcing a panel of experts to judge the ideas. How much money are you talking about, Peggy? I'm pleased to tell you that the Ambridge Conservation Trust will be offering a prize fund of half a million pounds. How much? Half a million pounds. So, you said, Royfield, that we weren't going to talk about The Sopranos, but I thought that one was particularly <laughs> like the gathering of the heads of the family. It's like a proper sitcom, right? It was, it was. Good spot, good spot. Um, 
in a way, The Archers is fundamentally about the heads of three families, isn't it? Uh, but who is truly at the head of these families? Um, if it was the Sopranos, it would all be about uh, the, the Capos are the guys, aren't they? But I put it to you, Pear, that what we have in The Archers is each family's head is actually a matriarch, with the possible exception of, uh, of Home Farm, which now isn't home. Well, it's still a home farm. They just don't live in the house at Home Farm. With the exception, no, even then, I would say that Jenny is actually really, truly the boss of, of that outfit. How do we think the Archers deals with matriarchs and the matriarchy? You did a, a bit of a poll, didn't you, over on the Academic Archers in the last week? So um, why don't you tell us about the results of that? And then lead in with some of your conclusions, Nicola. Hello. Yeah, that's that's good. I do have actual empirical data to share, everybody. So, you know, the academic archers is strong. So I, I just put this round um, academic archers and dumpty dummers and such is the enthusiasm of our fan base that um, I got 150 responses in sort of 24 hours flat. Now, any social scientists listening, you dream of that kind of response rate. So thank you, everybody. So one of the first questions was, would you say that you have particularly strong feelings about the characters of Peggy and Jill? And of 150 AA and dumpty dummers, only 40% said yes, they did. So that was interesting in and of itself. In, and and 59.6%, 90 respondents, not particularly. Then, so gauging the strength of those feelings, because we do hear an awful lot, don't we, on the boards about, you know, Jill's terrible and Peggy's awful. Once we split it out, those who had feelings about the matriarchs, they were moderately negative, followed by moderately positive. And strongly negative was only the third category. There's only eight people from that uh, base that had strongly negative views about, about the matriarchs of Ambridge. And that I thought was very interesting because I say, if you listen to the sort of louder voices, they are normally, um, I mean, well, I mean, to be honest, it hasn't, that, that clip doesn't put Peggy in the best of lights because why does she persist with this kind of mad sort of Thatcherite competitive survival of the fittest sort of business um but in general our our, our real um it, it maybe maybe the matriarchy is something that we've sort of overblown a bit in in the commentary world because because real listeners or real fans yeah it, they've got moderate feelings about those granny that the granny power of Peggy and Jill mm. Mr. Spoon? Uh, well, well, I like uh, Peggy and Jill myself, and I never understood uh, the antipathy for them. Uh, and I was so happy to see, uh, to hear uh, Peggy back. I was afraid because mm -hmm. of the pandemic that, that we wouldn't be hearing Peggy because the mm -hmm. uh, because June Spencer wouldn't be able to return to play her. Yeah, so it, it, one, it, right? Uh, right, right, and uh, they're they're part of. Do you use in the UK? Do you use the term the Greatest Generation? The to, Great Generation, not so right. much. I mean, right. in terms of so, this is this is one for you know this is pop sociology, isn't it? Um, the Great Generation is more of an American thing. We might we call them the War Generation, I guess. Uh, yeah, so uh, I mean, we should really treasure that. That we still have two strong characters uh, from that generation, and you know they have their positives and their negatives. But the, <laughs> maybe the uh, 
feelings of uh, of those those that uh, broadcast them uh, the negative feelings are you know are, are they're reflecting something in their own lives <laughs> their relationship toward their mothers. Well, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Bear Witherspoon, because I think. I read one or two of the comments uh, on the academic archers um, underneath this poll, and a couple of people actually said that Peggy in particular reminded them, or at least it brought out feelings that they had with their mother. Yeah. Uh, And I went, yeah, so this is definitely a mirror on, on your on the listener as opposed to actually truly the character um and and, the, and these obviously were like relationships which were difficult difficult and testy uh for those individual listeners but i'm just with you with a spoon i don't understand particularly with jill I don't understand how she has the negative, um, she will elicit the negative feelings that she does from some listeners. Uh, with Peggy, it's a little bit more un- understandable. But I would say that the, the Peggy narrative is truly one of a woman overcoming various odds, bringing up her children, ostensibly in a marriage, but really by herself and triumphing. You yeah, know, we, we have this whole. And she survived. Yeah, absolutely. She survived right. alcoholism. Absolutely. She survived Alzheimer's. She's a survivor. She's basically yeah. Ambridge's answer to Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me, um, this is going to be This is going to be dull as shit if we just agree with each other for an hour. So I will. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I'm saying to you, though, right, did she say to Jack Woolley, put a, put a ring on it? Did you, uh, you know, there was a thing. He proposed several times, didn't he? There was something. Yes, he it. did. Yeah, yeah. He did. Okay, Peggy as 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 bouncy Knowles. Right. Here's potentially where we could disagree with each other because I put it to you that the other Kappa was it Kappa, if if uh, female heads of the mafia are called Kappas, uh, is Jennifer. Um, I think we're this is slightly more contentious ground to say that she's uh, the matriarch of. Uh, she's the boss, sorry, of Home Farm. Um, is she or is she not? Well, interesting. Um, I mean, she's certainly in straightened circumstances recently, isn't she? I mean, the sort of height of Jennifer's pomp was the ridiculous Albion kitchen, as we all know. We had a brilliant chapter in our Custard Culverts and Cake book by Amber Medland, which was about the weaponizing of domestic goddess status by Maine and Jennifer. <laughs> and it was oh, it's a joy, it's an absolute joy. I mean, there is a whole world. I mean, everyone listens to the archers kind of with their own lens, don't they? They sort of you know, pick things out. But the, the role of food and the role of the provision of sustenance in the archers, I mean, to me, you say it's about matriarchy. I think it's about food. <laughs> <laughs> Witherspoon, um, sure. how do we think that Jennifer is reacting to her reduced uh, financial status? Not well, to, uh, to put it plainly. Uh, I think sh- she has really enjoyed her status uh, in the village. Uh, and, I, you know, I think she think she's a little bit above the others um so it's been a it's been a tough road for her uh but uh she's drawing from some inner strengths 
uh, that she has. She's she's also struggled through the years, you know, bringing up uh, being a single mom uh, in the 1970s uh, must not have been easy. And again, though, the sort of there's there is that sort of just the thing about. Um, that that gets get on people's nerves about Jennifer is that there's all the airs and graces, but she's just she's got children by multiple men, just the same way as Tracy Horribin has, you know. And um, there's a sort of sense that she um, all the sort of social climbing stuff really gets in people's on people's nerves. I've got a great quote here from the survey. There was a write-in last question, which obviously is always the most interesting. So Beggy and Jill aren't the only female characters I'd describe as matriarchs. Are they seen as the chief matriarchs because of their age? What is the qualifying age for being a matriarch? Good question. Very good question. Well, again, there there's different generations of matriarchs uh, in average. There's you said, the war generation matriarchs, and then there's the baby boomer yeah. matriarchs, and they have very different characteristics. And soon, and soon they'll be succeeded by the the next generation, the millennial matriarchs. No, you've missed us. We're Generation X after ah. the Boomers. We're the ones that do everything. <laughs> True. Um, I've got I've got another quote here. Some people get old without being a bossy or b stupid. Some age gracefully and some disgracefully. I quite like that. Yep. Mm. I mean, that's the other question is we've talked about granny power in um, in the gossip book, which was obviously all about the gender relations in the archers, gender, sex and gossip. And we um, exactly that the, the, the granny power of, for example, um, Mungo's granny power would be uh, mobilizing um, Linda and um Lillian as as matriarchs and that I I would argue since again anything that's sort of mainstream Archer or Aldridge is less interesting than the rest of the cast generally um so this is why I think that the whole return of Mungo storyline would start would give us some completely different matriarchs and I think that could be quite um partly the sort of tension that there was earlier in the year between Lillian and um Linda is all uh, building to them being uh, the heads of the family uh, in if that all comes to pass. Obviously, if we're talking about matriarchs, we're talking about uh, getting old, about maturity. One of the wonderful things about the archers is that um, not only does it depict uh, older citizens, what it doesn't do is just depict our more, more senior characters, more senior citizens, as just being uh, simpering quietly in a corner watching daytime TV. Um, one of the one of the kind of subtle criticisms, maybe, of the depiction of some of the older characters in the Archers is that none of them seem to have any health issues. They're that <laughs> healthy, mm-hmm. that vibrant. Um, how do we think that the Archers? Uh, depicts growing old other than just my little description here's a little bit of a clip and then we'll come back with Witherspoon's first thoughts he's a good listener attentive that's very important and easy to talk to I've already told him things I've never it's silly really I've known him for such a short time but well I feel I can trust him I don't think it's silly at all it must be lovely for you to have a confidant after all those years on your own. Well, I've never been lonely. I've had the family and good friends like you. Yes, but 
Family and friends look to you to be the strong one. I expect you to listen to them. I suppose that's true. I know what I'm talking about, Jill. I know you do. And it sounds to me as though you and Leonard might be a bit more than friends. And what would you think about that if we were? Jill, I'm just pleased to see you happy. But you can see that it's complicated, having this happen at my age. Does your age make any difference to the way you're feeling? No. Well, except I feel 20 again, which is ridiculous. Why? Enjoy it. I do, when it's just the two of us. It's wonderful. Isn't that all that matters? It isn't just what you feel that matters, it's what other people think, people you care about. Ah, yes. Things like, well, getting used to the idea of being seen together in public. No one will think anything of it, except be pleased for you. Was it like that for you and Jack? Oh, we'd been friends for years. Everyone was used to seeing us together. Didn't that make it more of a shock when you did decide to get married? I think most of them wondered why it had taken us so long. (laughs) (laughs) Even your family? Ah, that's what you're worried about. I so want the children to like him. Have they all met him? Yes. And? Well, they seem to, as far as I can tell. David and Ruth made him very welcome at Brookfield, and we had a nice cup of tea with Shuler the other day. There you are, then. And he and Kenton had a good old chat about architecture last week. I didn't know Kenton was interested in architecture. No. Well, I'm not sure that he is. And Elizabeth? Yes. She's the one I'm most worried about. She and Phil were so close. What well, One of the things which I thought was really great about Jill and Leonard uh, first getting together was when Jill was going to spend the night round at Leonard's and um, Jill was hoping to be in Leonard's bed and Leonard uh, said that, oh, you know, I think you should be best in, in, in the spare room. And the, the depiction of older citizens, older people, not only um, embracing their kind of, at least their sexuality is still important, I thought was, was great. Um just give us your feeling, your thoughts and feelings, Witherspoon, about what the archer is telling us about actually growing older, and then maybe we can delve into some of the specifics. Well, uh, yeah, Leonard's uh, such a nice guy. He's such a great character um, and, and a, a very good match uh, for Jill. I know it's, it's so important for uh, older people to have companionship, to have a sense of romance, uh, to have love. Uh, You know, it's the ideal. It's not the reality in the world. Uh, She's, uh, at this point, I think she was probably 88 or 89 years old. She's now 90. You know, it's different when finding romance in your late 70s or early 80s versus uh, late 80s and 90, there's many more impediments. And it, it, it goes back to, you know, do, does the archers depict aging accurately? You know, there does seem to be a magic elixir in the in the River Am. Uh, people just don't seem to have the aches and pains or, or chronic illnesses uh, 
of aging. We just never hear about it. Uh, who has high blood pressure? Who has high cholesterol? Uh, who has arthritis? <laughs> uh, Jill and Peggy seem to be ambulating just fine, cooking up meals. Uh, you know, no, we all know people in their 90s, and and unfortunately, they're much more physically impaired uh, than, than Peggy and Jill, than Joe was. Uh, it, it's great to, to see it as an ideal, uh, but is it accurate? Uh, I'm not so sure. I, I wish the archers would show some more about the negative side of aging. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we've had lots of medics over the years doing various papers on what prevalence of various uh, diseases and illnesses and all the rest of it should be in Ambridge. And I mean, they are medical miracles, aren't they? Let's face it. And yeah, like the difference between um, more or less running still running the household at Brookfield still picking <laughs> up a storm you know and and I think it's true like so my own nana who I was very close to um it was it was her mid-90s she really slowed down you know she 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 lived to 103 she was absolutely amazing but the last few years weren't much fun and she was very active um so I guess they've got this to to come um how they depict slowing Peggy and Jill down Mm-hmm. sensitively obviously the only character who really has slowed down and it's more of a a mental thing as opposed to physical has been christine hasn't it she mm. very much just says you know i can't quite cope with with life and i want to be in a home but that mm. wasn't a physical thing it was very much attitudinal it was it was mental wasn't it with a spoon yeah but prior to that she'd had that horrible thing being relieved of her life savings so like Mm. Yes, I'm here. Sorry, sorry, I was just oh. talking over everybody as usual. Um, the, no, you, go on, you go, you go, Nicola. Yeah, go on. Before that, there were some lapses of judgment because I mean, she, you know, she was conned out of her life savings, wasn't she, by um, Matt right. and that. So, in a sense, yes, fading faculties and being vulnerable to kind of crime showed her on the slide they tried it a bit with peggy as well after she was broken into or there was something about being fearful but she seems to have got rid of all that and is still stomping around as selling like, i just see peggy as, as as like mrs thatcher mm. <laughs> she she is that thatcher right um w- woman done good um it has to be said um the one thing which is a recurrent refrain for me is just the fact that really the older actors are never really written out of the archers it's the one soap where that happens sorry docudrama uh, where that happens um and they're allowed to just pass on naturally mm. and i and i do love the archers for that i absolutely do um one yeah. thing which the which the show has been criticised about in the past is its depiction of mental health. Um, this is obviously an area where you have some kind of expertise, uh, but there's one character in particular in the last couple of years who uh, had a bout of depression, and it was Lizzie. <laughs> Yes, I'm here. 
Who's above? In the bedroom. Ah, here you are. Door was on the latch. No one knew where you'd gone. Oh, Elizabeth, what's wrong? I'll be fine. Rubbish. Come on, what is it? You can tell me. I don't think I could take it anymore. Take what? Any of it. It's too much. Bert came to see me earlier. I was awful to him. It's just horrible. No, I'm sure it weren't that bad. No, it was. It was as if someone else had taken over. It all just came pouring out. Well, okay. If you're worried about Bert, I suppose I could talk to him. No, no, no. He's a decent bloke. I'm sure he'll understand. Really, it's, it's me who needs to apologise. It's more than that. More? I'm scared, Jolene. Every little problem feels overwhelming. Even after the sleeping pills, I'm constantly tired. I don't know wh whether I want to scream or cry. No, that's OK. It's what you've all been trying to tell me. Elizabeth, all any of us want is, is what's best for you. I want to feel like myself again. I haven't wanted to admit it. But this isn't just stress. Jolene, I think I may have depression. I must admit, when I first heard that uh, scene, I think it was about 18 months ago or so, I was a little bit sniffy because after she says the word depression, you have, da, 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 which is the, you know, the equivalent to the EastEnders, dum, 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 which took away from the great acting on that scene and made it, dare I say, a little bit kind of cheesy. Uh, but without the theme music, um, it's a really well-played uh, scene. And the, the word depression doesn't have, you know, the dramatic overtones uh, which it had uh, when, when the show went out. It's, it's, it's much softer uh, kind of word to end on. Um, with a spoon, how realistic has the Archer's portrayal of mental health and the travails that the characters have had with it been, let's say, in your time listening to the show? Considering that you are a you're a, a physical therapist, aren't you? So you have a expertise <laughs> yes, in this in this field. Yes, a physical therapist, and occasionally I I do some psychiatry on the side. That's correct. Uh, so, well, of that scene, yes, I remember it very distinctly, being very impressed by the whole scene until she said, sniff, sniff, I think I have depression, as if it were a venereal disease. Uh, you know, I expected the organ, right? We heard the, the ending theme music. I expected, like, the the organ to start playing these ominous chords um you know i i it it sounded like depression was something she was afraid of which i uh, for some people it is uh but i i must say thumbs up and and kudos to the archers for uh, uh for the presentation of her depression i know a lot of people were critical of it again for the speed in which she seemed to recover but it, number one, the presentation of symptoms was very accurate. 
And actually, the speed of treatment wasn't that far from reality. It, it really reflects a range of recovery. For someone who's never, who doesn't have recurrent depression, uh, you know, six months or so of therapy for, uh, for an initial uh, episode and uh, with medication, uh, it's not that far out of the norm. Uh, I would have, as a psychiatrist, I, I would have continued treating her with medication. Uh, I was a little PO'd at her for stopping it. It seemed like she stopped it on her own. And then, and then she told the, psych, the therapist or, uh, um, and I guess she went to her GP for the medication, which again is consider, considering the rural area, the lack of access to psychiatry, not out of the norm. Um, I wish she had stayed on the medication a bit longer. What we look at is once a person recovers from the depression, uh, however many months or years that it takes, we we then, the rule of thumb is keeping the person on medication for an additional six months, and then we start weaning the person off. But again, kudos to the archers for for presenting these mental health issues. Yeah, I think she presented fine, and I'm I'm interested to hear that with the screen because clearly that's that's your experience. I think um, so. Certainly, uh, when Lucy was talking on Dumpty Dum about her experience of kind of lifelong medication, that concurs with my experience. Is that I've had you know a number of depressive episodes, and I really worry about the advice to just kind of sack your medication off and then kind of tell everybody. And I I would have, what would have been wrong with keeping her long term on antidepressants? I mean, a lot of people, it, it sort of contributes to the sort of weird stigma that you're on them and you can't wait to get off them. And in my experience, my personal experience, obviously, sort of um, as a, a patient, as it were, there's a big kind of mental shift away from I'm on these tablets and I want to be off them. And actually fighting against the medication isn't really helpful in the end. And there's more a sort of acceptance that I kind of need these things and it's part of my range of coping mechanisms. And that, which is the much more sort of, I don't know, sort of maturing of your relationship with, and again, I love, yeah, I have depression. I don't think, it's just very, it just felt very clunky as a sentence to me that. But, you know, everybody's got an experience of kind of improving and worsening symptoms, but just to sort of, Oh, just let's flush the pills and we're all right now. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was, I thought it was right. dangerous to be honest. No, that's true. So what would be good is if she has a relapse, uh, not to wish it on Lizzie, but uh, if she were to have a return of depressive symptoms, then the best advice would be, okay, now, based on your age and the recurrence of of symptoms, it's it's best to stay on the medication for a, a long time, an indefinite period of time, perhaps perhaps a lifetime, mm. uh, to prevent our future recurrence of episodes. And one thing that was really interesting for us was that when we were um, when we were writing the gossip book, we had, you know, Charlotte Martin is the most amazing academic archer because she's 
um, has her PhD in child psychology and as well as playing Susan. And she has this whole backstory in her head for Susan about how jealous she was of the Archer and Aldridge girls when she was younger, sort of literally imagining her looking out of the window of number one, the green and seeing them kind of throwing their heads back and going on their ponies and laughing and, you know, having, having, you know, having good hair, I imagine. But then what she said was that, Actually, what's happened is there's been a big reversal in middle age. So we were talking about aging, um, weren't we? You know, that actually neither Shula nor Elizabeth have exactly been um, settled in their kind of uh, middle aged or, you know, what late middle age, you know, whatever. I mean, they're they're boomers, aren't they? Um, And I think this is fascinating, right? Because character and resilience and all that stuff, that is not about who you are. It's about what you do. And I think it could be argued that there were, particularly with like her heart defect and things, if the Archer family had been a bit more sort of psychologically or psychiatrically aware, they might have sort of picked up things in Elizabeth previously that might have meant that she was thinking more in a more rounded way about her moods and all the rest of it. I think, um, and then again, back to the point that um, Susan, she may have, she may have faults, but she is, probably the most comfortable in her own skin which ends up as a kind of horribin's revenge i guess against the archers and aldridges who are struggling a bit that certainly the, those characters are with kind of you know just existential just kind of being alive stuff i think hmm, interesting you say is susan comfortable in her own skin uh does... Oh, I, I wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought so. Though I think she's incredibly resilient. Yes. I think, you know, fortitude, she has that in spades. But uh, for me, her always want to uh, to social climb and to, uh, to always compare herself to who people who she does see as her social betters will say that she isn't comfortable in her own skin. But that's just my... Uh, working class chip on the shoulder uh, viewers susan uh, but just coming but just slightly just coming back onto onto mental health um the one thing which we have had in the last two three months was lily and freddie at least lily referring back to how difficult things were for elizabeth so they haven't completely dispensed with it it still is some part of you know the ongoing um mirror the ongoing view that we have of of lizzie of elizabeth but one of the things which i thought was uh really great about the episode when she went to go and see the therapist was she went to go and see the therapist and and we heard heard it what would i th- i think one of the things which the i think the script writers missed was the ongoing relationship she would have had with a therapist not that we needed an episodic long chunks of it going forward but the actress is all about intimate relationships isn't it whether it's robert and linda that's a great relationship or whether it's with kenton and jolene and we could have introduced um the you know the patient with with the therapist and then have it just naturally fade out and then have the big sign off you know where she doesn't go anymore um you must have 
a real view on this with a spoon because I don't know how many patients you have, but you, you know, it's a confessional. You're a priest, you're a therapist, you're a, you know, you, you do a bit of sports massage as well, don't you? You do all sorts <laughs> over there. <laughs> the New Jersey Board of Licensure cannot hear that. Right. <laughs> no, but joke, jokes aside, um, how did the scriptwriters miss a trick with not having, uh, not delving deeply into not only Lizzie's uh, depression, but developing or at least showing us the relationship between a therapist and, and their patient? Well, well now you would... are talking about the Sopranos, Royfield. And I mean, that's what I was, going to, I was going to say the same thing. I, what I thought of was Tony and Dr. Melfi. I mean, that is, that's a compelling relationship that develops. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But the, unfortunately, they, the producers probably feel they don't have the time to, in any given episode on an ongoing basis, uh, to delve into that. But, but that would be a wonderful addition to the Archers. Uh, and so maybe I, do actually, I, I think... It's a, it's a good point, Roy, that, they, that it's about relationships. But one thing that is very often remarked on is that there's not a lot of relationships with outsiders with professional skills. So in the Helen and Rob storyline, the safeguarding, you know, anyone that came into contact with that family would have been going through checklists in their head all the time. We've had papers over the years about where are the educators, where are the social workers and, you know, midwives. I mean, they've been, they've been shown in quite an interesting light with the um, current Alice unpleasantness, but they, but people with professional skills out with the village, there isn't really much of that at all. That, that's uh, you are completely right. You're completely right. I mean, what we seem to get is a professional outsider who comes in and bang, it's one scene or one episode, and then they've gone. There's, there's, there's never any follow-up, is there? Right, go, goes back to our dissatisfaction of, of uh, writing Mike and Vicky and Bethany uh, mm. out of the show. You know, it was a great opportunity uh, to see you know, what support services Bethany would have needed and would have gotten, uh, how she would have integrated into school into the village uh but they seemed to blow it on that and we're all in agreement so um we had a brilliant paper from professor runswick cole on that that they use um disability as a narrative prosthesis and then they you know say even things like brian's epilepsy it just goes you know it's not it's needed for a storyline but then He's still scoffing red wine while, you know, epileptics and medication and all that kind of thing. And then on the other hand, and the counter argument is, of course, this is all just dull stuff. So, we, you know, we've said that the older people aren't riven with arthritis and mobility problems and, you know, the, the, the low level mental health problems aren't brought to the fore. And maybe, you know, that's just these are decisions that are made in terms of what's shown and why. And actually, you know, kind of niggles and health stuff. It might be realistic, but it's not particularly dramatic, I guess. The chronic, the chronic part about chronic illness is that it is just, you know, how are you feeling today? Still a bit shit. How are you feeling today? She's <laughs> like, not brilliant. I'll tell you one thing, though, and, and this is in all seriousness. Um, 
have you ever known anybody who was suicidal and or about to blow a hole in the wall of their daughter's bedroom to have made a complete recovery on the basis of it seemed like a couple of cups of tea with a spoon? Uh, well, uh, no, I, I can say that I have not. That was another particularly frustrating episode uh, of lack of follow-up of a mental health issue. Um, and, I, and I'm someone who really feels sorry for William. I know a lot of people don't like him. Uh, 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 I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I know he does a lot of bad things, but, but uh, yeah, I, I certainly wish he would, uh, somehow he can get the help he needs. So I'm, again, this is a Lucy comment that stuck with me when she said every single time that Clary sighs and says, Oh, Eddie, that goes to William's heart and he's her kind of, and he is the manifestation of her frustration and a kind of dark side that exists in that family, um, and I and I think that that's right. I think that it's, it's it's understandable why William is the way that he is, but he is, you know, but the way that he acts there, however, is sort of slightly unreconstructed, sort of, um, you know, slightly sexist, whatever, um, and not particularly kind of emotionally intelligent kind of character. Um, if you remember as well, there was a whole thing about the Grundys definitely um, closing ranks. They didn't want people to to wonder if he was suicidal or or what you know what had what had happened, or because of the relationship with the job and the firearms and all that kind of stuff. So in another, so maybe that maybe again, this is this is more realistic. But they they definitely closed ranks to outsiders or to help in in that storyline from William and and you know again, time apparently is like a magically great healer because again, just a bit of love from his mum and he seems to be okay now. I'm going to disagree with you there, Doc. Right. I, I think that the scenes that we've had with William and Eddie uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, and maybe it's because I know what's happened before. But for me, he's still putting himself back together. He's being critical of his father in terms of this whole metal detector nonsense, but he hasn't been as and he's being supportive and and for me i think there's been a softer william grundy yeah, and maybe. i think it's because because of these you know uh because of the loss of nick because of how he dealt with it then also you know the loss of his stepdaughter etc but that could be a whole load of projection from me um i i would agree you think so with a spoon I think he's a little bit softer. You know, he sees things so black and white. Uh, he's such a law and order type guy. So I always like the interactions he has with his father because his father, uh, you know, skirts the law so much and it rankles Will. And if you've noticed, there's been several episodes like this through the years where where Will will confront Eddie about, the stuff he's doing and say, you know, what you're doing isn't right. Mm. Uh, it's against the law. It's uh, ethically questionable. Uh, so I like, I like when Will does that. And, and, but I agree that I think we are seeing a slight softening of him. 
But also, let's face it, what he had to contend with. I mean, losing your wife suddenly to sepsis, losing your the kind of head of the family, the, your granddad, and all the stuff about then having to be, you know, essentially it was partly because of his sort of underlying misogyny that he'd allowed Nick to kind of run their entire family and then was thrust into being primary carer for William. I mean, it wouldn't, I don't think it would have been as difficult for Ed, for example. Ed feels like a more kind of emotionally intelligent, kind of intuitive father to me than William. But that's what, but that's all the things that ended him up kind of, as I say, with, with a shotgun. But my God, like, I don't know, it feels again. And, and I, and I understand that, you know, there's, there are firearms in the country and there are, you know, he was a gamekeeper and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, from suicide watch back, you know, to being recuperated quite so quickly and no one ever knew and just kind of, you know, I just, it, it, it feels to me like um, it's fine to present these things, but if you then downplay the seriousness, it's almost better not to bother if you're not, you just mean, if or, you're not yeah. going through. Yeah, you know? they, they just drop the storyline, um, like, boop, he's, yeah. he's fixed, on to the next issue. Sure. And I mean, I just think, I mean, you would, you might argue, and again, God forbid, it's terrible, you know, backseat psychiatry, but like, you know, clearly he should have been treated for sort of feelings of compound grief and loss, right? right. Yeah, he should have been hospitalized at that point. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. Mm. He was definitely a risk to himself and to others. And so then, then actually, rather than it being a strong thing, it ends up um, by, in some ways, yeah, it, it, I mean, maybe we're holding everything to a far too high a standard, and I'm aware of that. But like, if you're going to show things not resolving in a way that would help people in their own kind of reality, then you are sort of getting into some slightly difficult trouble. And I remember, again, Royfield, this was your massive issue at the end of the big, big storyline, the Helen and Rob. You know, why have her... You should... that She should have been found the strength with support to get out of there. That would have been the the sort of satisfactory re- resolution with the, the horrific modern slavery storyline that we all wish was over now. Um, you know, this has to resolve in a way you know, in a kind of moral way. Otherwise, I mean, we've had a terrible trouble this week in our academic arches, um, uh, Facebook universe, people talking about, um, uh, about this storyline and some people saying, oh, there's somebody saying in a, in a, in a discursive way, surely they're better off with Philip because they couldn't really cope with life. You are joking me. no, it got it got very very bogged down and very difficult but it was somebody um trying to pr- be provocative and then it kind of you know these threads can just go to hell but like you know it got very very feisty but like the point is is that the you know it, i think that you know, i think that on the these things like um you know suicide risk and long term um emotional mental health problems and distress uh the coercive control thing and Philip who obviously is coercive controlling but in a different way. And, you know, it's all linked with, with labor rather than with, um, you know, the fam- uh, home life. Um, they, they do so much work to make it credible on the way in. And then they kind of, either, they really struggle to get out right. I find like to, to kind of resolve things. And I, and I, I don't mean to be the kind of grumpy, why isn't you know holding it to a ridiculously high standard but i feel like 
I feel like the the, the writers really struggle to, to pull back out of the cul-de-sacs they get into in storylines. Mm. I think that is um, incredibly fair. Um, moving things on slightly, I'm trying to pull out of this uh, cul-de-sac. Um, we talked about, you mentioned Bethany uh, Tucker. And uh, I think it's right and proper that now we talk about uh, diversity uh, and the reactions to it within the village. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm just a simple man. I'm not a politician or an archbishop. I know about the land, how to farm it, that a bull's supposed to run with the cows. I know just what you're saying. But, well, hmm? well, I also know that whatever happens, you're meant to be there for your kids. And, and well, I decided I didn't want... I didn't want not to be here for the ceremony, if you get my meaning. I do. Life's just too short to let your children think you don't love them. 
So I headed off to the airport. Luckily, I managed to get a flight, and here I am. Oh, yes, you are. This is it. Good job I polished my shoes. Uh, okay. Um, thank you. I should have struggled to find it by myself. No problem. So, are you coming in? We'll be together, and I will be here. I will be true to the promises I've made, to you and to the one who gave you to me. I will be here. Oh, dear. Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer. Yes. Would you like a tissue? Oh. Oh, yes, please. Could I have one, too? Oh, you're not crying. <laughs> Kate, what a pair we make. There you go. Yeah, thanks. Mum, look, look. Oh, sh- sh- Ian's about to start. No, 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 it's Dad. What? At the back, he's here. Oh, my goodness. Who's that with him? I don't know. Oh, it's wonderful, though. One of the criticisms of the archers is that um, it's a bit of a monoculture. Um, it's it's very white. Um, it's quite middle class, but yes, there is uh, definitely the the oppressed Grundys, um, and and then when there is uh, some level of di- diversity, whether it's uh, you know gay characters, um, they're not really explored much uh, obviously we talked about bethany tuck and that's the reason what led us into this bit of the discussion um first off i must admit i always kind of struggle slightly with people talking about the lack of let's say racial diversity in uh, in in ambridge because i think ambridge is, is is going to be pretty standard of most uk uh villages uh, that i've ever been to and i and i must admit the only time when i'm in the uk when i get asked where am I from, invariably is when I go to rural England. And it's by somebody who's very well-meaning. And and without me thinking, I'll go, well, I'm from Birmingham. And then they'll go, oh, but where are you from? And, uh, and then I go, okay, I'm in a bit of England where uh, people don't see people like me that often, you know. So, um, so for me, the Archers kind of does hold up somewhat of a mirror to English society, at least when it's a lack of racial diversity. I'm not going to slag it off about that at all. But we have had many people talk about the lack, uh, about this representation of gay characters, uh, maybe people with learning difficulties. Um, oh, sorry, it's not learning difficulties, no, differently abled. Sorry, people who, let's say, differently abled. And I was very angry about uh, Bethany Tucker being 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 written out. Um, Nicola, where do you think uh, the Archers has done, let's say, a good job in depicting uh, diversity which have in wider society? And where do you think maybe it can pull its socks up? Yep, it's a perennial, and I, I, I'm kind of broadly with you. I think that um, I think well, there's 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 the controversy around Usha's character and how she won't be returning gives the end to um, to a character who I really enjoyed, which was Auntie Satya coming and uh, being in the orbit of the village. Um, but yes, I uh, you know uh, Usha. Um, as a Hindu and um, 
explaining sort of you know culturally diverse traditions to the village it did feel slightly like reading out from a from a booklet but you know it's kind of it was it was what it was and there was also some pushback wasn't there when she arrived around you know the the storyline with Roy Tucker not being you know as right on as we might have hoped we've had loads of papers over the years on um queering ambridge queering shula um looking at so so um the range of um diversity around sexuality all academic archers want to see lesbians i mean that's just there's just often a, a thing uh and or um um people whose whose gender or or sexuality isn't easily put into a box that would be good too um but i think that the main thing is is that it's as you describe ambridge has quite a strong culture which is more important than other characteristics it's almost like a french attitude to diversity you're french first and then your other list of characteristics later, which is um, it doesn't really reflect the rest of uh, mainstream English and British culture, I don't think, because that's not really how it goes. People's identity is constructed from all the different facets and characteristics, the sort of intersectional ways in which they're constructed. And um, I don't know, like, yeah, Ambridge just certainly whitewashes, um, but also the sort of Ambridge... Was that pun meant, Nicola? (laughs) Yeah. It was, of course, um, but also the Ambridge, the Ambridge fairy, you know, imbues Ambridge first and then other characteristics second. I don't know what you think about any of that. Question is, how do you introduce other characters of different ethnicities of of different race? Uh, it would mean that <clears throat> new there would need to be a a wave of immigration into Ambridge. And I suppose that isn't uh, realistic. You know, is what is the state of other English villages? Are they becoming more ethnically diverse or or are they staying about the same? Um, So that's a question I would pose. Uh, it's, it's, It's a challenging question to the producers and it was a theme that was picked up in the absolutely brilliant article by charlotte higgins just this week in the guardian about the question about whether ambridge is reflecting back the sense of middle england or the sense of itself or if it's framing it um and kind of is much more directing um how 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 uh at ease with with various things, um, the sort of English middle class is at the moment, because uh, you know I, I would argue that the English kind of middle class is in in a in a bit of a fractious and and um, and fearful state at the moment, and we've not got any of that kind of reflected. Partly because you know the archers doesn't do Brexit stuff like that, but I think the une- the general unease in British society isn't really coming through in the village. I, I you know discuss. Mm. I completely agree with you. Um, mm. You're completely right, Nicola, that what we don't have is any couching of illiberal views, which, I, which, as much as I don't agree with them, they happen. And that's why I played that clip, because that for me was very realistic. It was somebody who's um, a father of 
uh, of a man who's about to get married to another man. And he comes from a conservative bit of the country. He's got a conservative mindset. And he talked about his unease or the fact he just didn't quite understand, but he saw it was important to be there. So it's not as if he was a raging homophobe and he and he said, how dare my son go do this? But at least there was some couching of views which many people in society will have, rightly or wrongly. I would say they're wrong, but they have them. And I think there's too often in the archers um, when somebody is confronted by when a character who is let's say conservative is confronted by uh, some issue of diversity that we don't have a realistic dialogue and I think that uh, conversation with Brian and Ian's father was somewhat of a gentle one but it, it, it spoke volumes to me Right. They were able to work in a sense of hopefulness for change via through exposure. Uh, so they worked both sides of the coin there. But let's not forget that Brian was about to not show up to his own son's wedding. Right. I mean, like without the um, uh, antagonist from from outside, you know, Brian would just have been grumbling at the bar. He wouldn't have had. He wouldn't have said those things. But his absence spoke mm. them, didn't it? Right. But it also speaks to the relationship between Adam and Brian. You know, Adam isn't Brian's biological son. How much does that play into it? Sure. If well, I mean, Adam, I suppose... yeah, if Adam had been his his blood relative, his son, maybe uh, Brian would have been different. That's just uh, kind of a more of a character analysis and, and their relationship analysis. Not, well, uh, let's see, since Rory has pointed out, you yeah. know, He's, he's he's fluid and Adam has done the heavy lifting for him so he can do what he likes and let's see let's see if Brian's tolerance has has it been extended we haven't seen Rory come out god forbid to his parents yet although we know that he has admitted to friends that he's bisexual so we'll see how that all goes yeah actually uh, so now I will contradict myself because <laughs> in an earlier podcast I said that I your know, Rory feels exactly that that Adam has done the heavy lifting and that Brian, he anticipates Brian to be accepting of him uh, when he chooses to come out. But I actually think Brian will, will have a rough time uh, and it will be Jennifer who comes to the rescue and, and uh, confronts uh, Brian about his attitudes. I, I thought that this was done really well because there's so, so many younger people, certainly younger than me, they are just not playing the game according to the binary characteristics that we set out for, laid out for them. They are not receiving either gender or sexuality in that black and white way. I mean, most sort of, you know, and I mean sort of 15 to 25 year olds that that young that are genuinely seeing the, the whole spectrum in much more of its kind of, you know, infinite diversity rather than as, you know, I like girls or I like boys. I think it's that it's that's a really profound social change. I don't know if you agree in, um, with this. I, I completely agree with you mm-hmm. uh, there, Nicola, though, to slightly contradict that uh, Ben did go 
that's great. So when we go out, then all the girls are for me. And then, <laughs> and then Rory goes, oh, it's not quite as simple as that uh, type mm. of thing. So it was, but however, fundamentally, Ben didn't care that his yeah, best I mate right. was like, bisexual. Was the point. Yeah. yeah. The kids do not yeah, care. They just didn't yeah, care. Yeah. yeah. This kids... generation of kids, right, do not care, which is great. You know, he, he was more jealous of the, the, fr- the school friend with the, what was his stupid name? Yes. Uh, uh, Troy. Oh. Troy, right? It was a yes, yeah, right. It was Troy. Yeah. yeah, he was more jealous when he was um, an emotional um, rival, right? Then suddenly he's an ex, and it's like, oh yeah, fine. You know, I thought that was that was so cleverly done because, you know, again, if you're thinking about, you know, boxed off mindsets about, you know, how boys are, how men are, there's been so much kind of sensitivity and kind of emotional support between this pair, and possibly with the view to developing that one or both of them may not be entirely hetero. I think I think you're right. There is tremendous dramatic possibilities because um, although he struggled massively with the strictures of uh, bourgeois marriage, Brian absolutely gets it, right? The bull runs with the cows and then you've got the prime, you know. There is something about the intersection of the farming and kind of bloodline stuff and some of the attitudes to property and family and all that stuff. As somebody whose name is Royfield, I don't know if I'm going to accuse anybody as, as having a funny name if the name is Troy. I just, I just uh, the, the hypocrisy in that word wasn't lost on me when I thought about it. Whatever. Um, but, uh, um, it's the end of my father's first two names. So my father's full name is Glenroy Garfield Glasspole Brown. So Glenroy's his first name, Garfield is his second name. Then he has his third name, Glasspole, who was an ex-governor of Jamaica, then Brown. So... Ever since my father was a little boy, he always said that when he's a father and he has a son, it's going to be the end of his first two names, Glenroy, Royfield, Royfield. So my mother didn't have a say in the matter. That's where it comes from. So it's totally made up. And it means I'm always Royfield at everything. Royfield at Gmail, Royfield at yeah, Yahoo, Royfield at whatever. Anyone. You know, so my, my dad was thinking well ahead of the curve, well ahead of the curve uh, back in 1968. Um, now, um, just 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 before we completely not utterly leave uh kind of like diversity and reactions to it um i know when nolatando uh came to the village i thought that her scenes with peggy her great gran were great i i, I loved them and for me it's one of the strengths of the archers is intergenerational relationships so we have uh ben and jill i love it and maybe because it resonates with me culturally that being uh, being West Indian of West Indian heritage, it's it's all about respect for your elders and and hearing those stories. You know, whether it's almost the near both of my grandmothers or my grandfather, etc. So it touches me a lot. But I did think that that some of that writing, um, as lovely as it was, was a little bit weak because here is Peggy. Um, a white woman who nearing a hundred as she would have been then who didn't have any let's say understandably clumsy cultural questions to her biracial mixed race great-granddaughter who's grown up completely in another culture for her to have said something crass about hair or and younger generations would recoil and say, oh, my gosh, you can't say that. But here's a woman who was born in an age when you did see people 
of another skin color if you were white completely as the other mm. they were colonial you know and, um, this, and i just this thought is exactly the point that charlotte's really trying to get into in this guardian article because i just pulled it up and the the subheading is asking the question does the rural soap reflect the reality of country life or is it a fantasy liberal never never land for urban audiences this is, I was thinking about this because, you know, and again, the, the unease of the, we've discussed the unease of, of, the, of the kind of English middle class. Another thing, did, was, didn't some of the people from the village go on the Countryside Alliance march? This is a bit of a, this is a bit of a test. 10, 15 years ago, maybe more. I know that they never, ever do like, you know, no one would ever campaign for a political party or anything like that. But there are, there are um, social movements, right, in, in country life, which are, which certainly, so I mean, I would say, I would say the Countryside Alliance, there's a sort of Elysian, sort of UKIPI, sort of all that kind of thing. There isn't anybody in that space whatsoever. And we know that that's because it's written by extremely nice, educated people in Birmingham. But um, I think there is something in that that they don't, um, in terms of, um, and that, and it's maybe back to the point I was making about getting getting out of the big storylines, because they don't want to give offence. They don't want to bring people bring people round. To, you know, it's not didactic in that sense. It does people don't change their views. They are, I think, the, the suggestion would be slightly blurred in order to be sort of politically acceptable or you know politically correct um, in, in sort of mainstream British society. Oh, I was. I'm sure they're looking to avoid controversy, mm. <laughs> not to offend. Mm. Uh, they've done uh, focus groups. <laughs> also, can I just say that that Royfield, this whole I couldn't agree more. I'm I'm really enjoying this. So if you could just say it every time I stop speaking, that would just like that's, that's fine. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Right, there we go. I said it one more time. Um, so we've done, we've done diversity. Well, at least we've touched on it. Can't say we've we've done anything. We've maybe we've been a little bit like the scriptwriters here. We, we we've entered into a topic and not quite given it all the breadth that it needs because there is the constraints of time. Uh, we've done uh, growing old. We've done mental health. We've done matriarchs. I want to end on fandom. There were a few other things I was going to talk about, and very ob- there's a very obvious one which is class. But maybe we'll do that next Christmas. I don't know. Um, fandom um i'm gonna start with you with a spoon because in many ways well in one way uh you're not supposed to be a typical archers fan uh you're you're an american what are you doing muscling in on our quintessentially english broadcast british soap um what can we gleam about the docudrama from its fans that it's going to go on for a long long time in the future Fans are very passionate. You know, what drew me to the archers, you know, in brief, as, as many of you know, I'm married to a Brit. Uh, we met in 2002. I'd, uh, we would go back and forth across the pond. Uh, I'd be sitting in his uh, uh, kitchen at uh, 7 o'clock, and on came this uh, show that gradually began to wash over me. Uh, What draws me to the archers is perhaps what draws me to psychiatry. Um, uh, I love people. I I love people's stories. I'm a bit of a voyeur. 
I think a lot of people are like that. Uh, and uh, and uh, we sh- uh, have found each other through social media. Uh, w- you know, w- without social media, uh, 30, 40 years ago, uh, we wouldn't have this interconnectedness uh, between all of us. I know, I know, Roy Field, you, you sometimes have negative feelings about Facebook, but it is <laughs> what drew me. What that's how I discovered Dumpty Dum was through Facebook, and it's what uh, the positive side of Facebook is. What draws people? It draws people with common interests together. Uh, and has helped keep us going. So uh, I think uh, uh, the fandom is getting stronger and stronger and and will keep the archers going for many years to come. I think what with this boon is... is (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Nicola Hedlum, I think what Witherspoon then has given us there is very much the uh, Hallmark Cards version of um, how embracing and being uh, addicted to this soap can be uh, but some of us are nutters aren't we some of us fans are totally obsessive some you know go so far as to not only set up podcasts about it but some of these nutters even do things like um write books and uh, do academic papers uh, about the whole thing um can these people ever be redeemed Definitely not. I mean, uh, we've talked endlessly about how there's many circles of hell to being a, a true archer's uh, obsessive, and yeah, the, the, we're in the sort of the final circle of hell. We're so we're so ingrained in it that a whole chunk of our lives. <laughs> in fact, I often say to Kara, um, "Brilliant, let's have a side hustle that takes all our time." Uh, makes us zero pounds and um, can upset and offend everyone we've ever met. (laughs) (laughs) But I must say, I'm afraid... Um, although it can get feisty, that I'm 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 in the Hallmark Cards place, and given that you know this is this is a, a you know a season of goodwill and all that, one thing that's been amazing this year about academic archers. So we just we we sort of just run the conferences to begin with, but this year it's become so much more intense. So we started doing Saturday omnibuses of old papers and just staying on for a bit of a chat in the first English lockdown. When we came out of lockdown, we thought people would sort of fall away again. But um, a kind of group of stalwart academic archers, research fellows, we've called them the prefects because they've kept it going. They're sometimes online to one another for two, three hours on a Saturday morning. And that's been, obviously, it's been a very weird year in that many of our people who might be older or might live alone or whatever, they've not been out and about. You know, they've not been had the range of um, entertainments that they would have in a normal year but they have really become quite a quite a gang you know they're they're um they are um in fact including people like claire asbury abs just people that we just absolutely love and then for english lockdown number two we car and i stepped back in and we got some of our favorite papers of all time including the brilliant um carenza lewis doing archaeology and and again, then after about an hour and a half, we would just sort of step back and they were genuinely, uh, they would stay on and talk and there, a lot of, um, you know, personal stuff is being shared and confidences and these are real relationships now. And it certainly wasn't what 
I don't know what we, we intended. I mean, Christ, we were just, you know, just wanted to, I just wanted to talk to somebody because my husband is like a refusenik of the kind of highest order. He kind of, having been, having grown up in a Radio 4 listening household, he literally is one of those that lunge for the radio to turn it off. So I just wanted to have a bit of a chat online and it was around the Route B storyline. And I found Kara on Twitter at the time. We would, it was on Twitter and um and yeah, six years on, there's a real community that sits under and around and in um academic arches. And I don't know, I think it was interesting because it's the same similar time, Roy, that you started with Lucy. And I think partly as well, in that period, because of the Helen and Rob storyline, people did need a bit of kind of peer support to kind of get rid of what they've been bathed in in the episodes so I think the sort of great flourishing of the recent kind of um, you know great institutions of the Archers fandom haha such as you guys and us you know it is partly out of um, as the storylines got darker it's the same as happened with the horses storyline the the, the, the enslavement storyline you know if people have left with a bad taste they want to go to people that they know to talk it through right Reading that great article it was in the Guardian uh, yeah, last week. Um, yeah, there, there was a great line from this this guy called Royfield Brown, and he, he talked about the various schisms. Yeah, I thought they focused um, too much on his views. No, they didn't actually. No, <laughs> you know, he barely survived the the editor's scalpel in that, in that article. But moving, but but getting get to the meat and the grist, grist of uh, what I said was that um, there has been a level of. Uh, let's say, entitlement around some of the fandom around the Archers. All of us have an opinion, and the fact of the matter is that all the pictures that are created um, around every scene in the Archers is individual because we can't see it. So we paint our own. So there are five million different Davids, Ruths, etc., etc., but there is something about it being a radio drama and then also not completely, but nearly completely, very wholly a Radio 4 um, audience, that there is a level kind of, of entitlement and I know more than you. Um, <gasps> and I find it really interesting. I know, you're gasping. You're clutching your pearls. Uh, there is something which I found really interesting is all the various schisms on social media, specifically Facebook. You can't really have a schism on on Twitter in the same way that you can on on, on kind of Facebook. Uh, whether it is and and you and some of them are quite understandable. You know, it's upstairs at the ball, and there's this and there's that, and it's slightly different vibes. But then um, you get because the the fandom that is so broad that it can cater for the fact that, you know, some people do flounce off from, from one group, set up another over there, um, which in the old days would be an equivalent to somebody writing in, in green, green pen, wouldn't it? So what the, what they always said, uh, you know, is that, you know, you get, you get that person who's writing green pen and, you know, so um, how do we, how do we feel about that? The core point that, um, some people 
I'm going to say it, it is life and death, but for some people, it's a little bit more important than that, and they don't <laughs> underline it uh, when when they talk about the show. So you're right; it's connected to the pictures we have in our head, and also there's an even more profound point to that, which is that although the the card index archive is famous, um, what genuinely Archer's law it exists in the heads of the listeners collectively, right? So it, it, so I'm so used to, because of academic archers, I'll say, oh, wasn't there something about the Countryside Alliance? And five people will say, yes, on the 9th of July, there was a demonstration. You know what I mean? There's people, some people are incredibly kind of, their recall is, is, is amazing. And um, I tend to think, I mean, I've had a bit of a hard time with some moderation points. So, um, init- so um, particularly... Having said that the archers managed beautifully with um, Rory's I'm by thing, I had some fairly unreconstructed views on the page and that was fine. I just blocked those people because that's just not cool. You can't, um, you know, talking about people for who they who they are as their essential characteristics is just not on. And although we welcome kind of, you know, a, a breadth of views and, you know, hate speech and, and you know, the, the normal kind of... Um, isms are just not on what is interesting is that um i think that social media and so i think twitter is like the wide open sea like you you know you're a fish in the wide open sea but all of the fandom um forums are like rock pools and you know they've got their own ecosystem and the best way for a rock pool to kind of be clean is for it to kind of self-police and you know it kind of comes into balance now, having, you know, a, a really nasty, feisty, massive crab stuck in your rock pool briefly can kind of make it quite turbulent. But in the end, they'll hop out and find other crabs or they'll stay and kind of cause cause your your more docile fish a problem. This metaphor is really getting tortured now, so I, I might back out of it. But you know what I mean? I think, I think there's space for everybody. Interestingly enough, Roy, we never, ever say flounce because we think it's quite a bullying thing and i mean i don't i i find some of those other groups kind of i'm like you know i'm perfectly happy in academic archers it sort of um it it sets it had um we've got two and a half thousand people in there now so it's not you know it's not all friends and family by any means but i think that people jump out of the rock pool if it's not quite right for them or i have to throw them out um and it is partly about the moderation of your rock pool. And you you said recently, didn't you, that you weren't going to entertain the other Facebook groups, just kind of academic archers and you. And um, I think, yeah, some of the other rock pools can get a bit feisty. Uh, back in 2015, when uh, I first stumbled upon the podcast and I listened to Roy and Lucy for the first time and I thought, oh my God, it's like, Two fr- and you've said this, Royfield. Uh, yeah, it's like two friends talking about the archers, and the- and they're so funny. And after a couple of episodes, I said, "Gee, I have stuff to say. I can call up and talk to them about it." Because here, I have no one else. Yes, I think my my husband has also gradually become a refusenik, and he thinks um kind of cuckoo for doing all this but i i thank him for his patience and for introducing me to the archers and for me it's a you know it's a bit of a reflection 
of of what I love. I, I fell in love with my husband. I fell in love with the the UK, with British people, and uh, you know, the Archers is uh, allows me to uh, you know to continue that that love affair on so many levels. Bless you. What what, what year did you meet your husband? We met in two thousand two. Because I, I have to say, with a spoon, I think we were a kind of we were more lovable then, right? We, we're not showing our best face at the moment. <laughs> well, Americans can't uh, say much either. Mm. Uh, I think we've all become less lovable. Mm. But that's a really nice point, is that? Um, and I think that's again, um, yeah. I mean, I listen. I've listened to Dumpty Dum for sort of four or five years, and it's been a soundtrack in the same way that The Archers is, and you know. Um, I think in this very strange year of all years, we have lent on each other for community and that um, inspired by this bonkers thing, which is 70 years old next week on New Year's Day. Let's just celebrate that for a moment. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Dr. Nicola Hedlam, um, so this Archers thing, how, how long have you been listening to it now? Oh, I listen in the womb. I mean, I, I I've, I've said uh, often but my. You're, you're bar- but you're barely twenty-one, and how you managed to get your your, your doctorate before you're twenty-one is just I, utterly amazing. So, so, so you're still bloody start. I'm getting older because I'm getting stronger <laughs> in my views. I'm forty-three, and I'm proud of it. So, I was born the day mm-hmm. after Kate Aldridge in real life. Oh so, wow. I was in real life and she was obviously in the archers. So Jennifer was pregnant at the same time as my mum. So Kate, I always have, a you know, you've got that sort of um, affinity with, particularly since most of my life she has made me look so good by most of her life decisions being absolute bullshit. And the first time I actually can consciously remember was I was having my fourth birthday party and Jennifer was having a very you know, that sort of Abigail's party side of Jennifer's domestic goddess shit. And something was going wrong with the fourth birthday party. And I remember thinking, fourth birthday party on the radio, but I'm having a fourth birthday party. And it was, you know, so in a sense, as long as I've had a sense of myself, I've had a sense of the archers. So there we are. So do you reckon you might stick along with this thing then? It seems to me like you're still on the fence. <laughs> well, I had a few years off. I mean, I, I don't. You know, teen, teenage years are not great for um, that kind of routine, and it's different now with you. Like, or you listen again, but you know, in my misspent youth, if you weren't by your radio at seven o'clock, then you weren't going to hear it. So, if you were, do you know? So, I definitely lapsed, sort of eighteen to about twenty-five. You're still judging whether you're really. Up for Let, it, into it. Let's give it another it. seventy years, Roy. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. There I'll you go. You, I'll tell you then. I'll come back and check with you, check in with you then, uh, <laughs> Mr. Spoon. Um, you are uh, you and Alan are uh, hunkered down in the upper lower east west side. Um, what does the typical Alan and Witherspoon? I should say. Let's just say Alan and Lonnie Christmas Day. What what does it look like? Oh, it's it's uh, quite special. Uh, Alan makes uh, an incredible uh, Christmas brunch uh, filled with uh, 
eggs and baked beans and French toast <laughs> and pancakes. It's a true American British uh, meeting of breakfasts. Uh, we open up our presents. Um, and we play with Angus, and he opens up his presents. And we mustn't forget Angus Haggis. And, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful day. And then he makes uh, an incredible Christmas dinner. It's, it's always just the two of us because we're, we're so busy during under normal circumstances. We're so busy under Christmas season, uh, during the Christmas season. I've been so busy with work, but Alan's been a bit slow. It's certainly not been the... Uh, typical Christmas season for his establishment. Uh, but it's a day for us to slow down and relax and watch some uh, good Christmas television and uh, look forward to the new year. So that's Obviously, that. Nicola, um, you're, you're a woman of tradition and uh, you don't like to break tradition. So uh, does everything at the Dr. Nicola Headlam household break for three o'clock when the, when the Queen's uh, speech is on? You would, and do you, you obviously stand up for that as well, don't you? Oh, fuck no. I mean, you know, we're, you know, liberal <laughs> intelligentsia. Um, so this year we'll be having the Headlam Naked Christmas on the basis that uh, it'll just be the two of us. I beg your pardon? Yeah, Naked oh, Christmas, nice. you know. Basically, um, we've had, in the past we used to have mastiffs, and the, the joke was that the dogs had their collars off. You know, it was a naked Christmas. So um, we two major on the morning, uh, smoked salmon, champagne, all of that, and then once that's happened, uh, anything else is a complete bonus. We we we'll just be nice and chill as well. I um. I'm gonna. My my nieces are nine year old twins, and I am absolutely devoted auntie. So not having them in my Christmas is hurting my heart this year. But you know, needs must because my folks are in their late seventies, and my dad hasn't been so well. So I will be tuning in to. Um, uh, and in fact, gosh, get round to plugging the, the 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 product. There's we've got endless opportunities to get online and discuss the archers over the Christmas period because we're building up, of course, the seventieth birthday on New Year's Day. So, if you do find yourself lonely this Christmas, we've got all the podcasts as well as the Dumpty Dum output, academic archers zooms on Saturdays. We've got a whole sort of itinerary just in case anybody's not feeling particularly sparkly. There you go. Um, anybody would think uh, Dr. Nicola Headlam was the host of Dumdy Dum. She rounded off so perfectly, folks. Uh, so that's me, uh, Royfield, in uh, a cold but sunny Canada, um, about to sign off. And I hope you've all had a wonderful Christmas day so far. So it's a tatty bye to our bit uh, from me over in Canada with a spoon in upper, uh, lower east, west side. Would you like to say bye-bye? Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. And we're going to leave the best till last. Dr. Nicola Headlam. It's would you Christmas! like to? <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one, everybody. Stay safe, stay sane.